0: Welcome to episode nine, the synergistic solution for patients with chronic pain and coexisting disorders by Dr. Steven Grinstead, licensed marriage and family therapist from Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Welcome back to part three. I'm Dr. Stephen Grinstead, and this title is The Synergistic Solution for Patients with Chronic Pain and Coexisting Disorders. This is where I like to talk about how to get out of the problem and into the solution. I'm sure many of you have heard the saying, I'll believe it when I see it. But how about I'll see it when I believe it? You know, I found an interesting quote I'd like to start with, and it's David Joseph Swartz. He says, Believe it can be done. When you believe something can be done, really believe, and your mind will find ways to do it. Believing a solution paves the way to the solution. And that's the mindset I want to start with today, because it's a new climate now, and the old system doesn't work for everybody. The biomedical model doesn't work for a lot of these people with chronic pain and coexisting disorders they need a synergistic treatment solution for that synergistic treatment problem that we talked about in earlier sessions. Let's start with evaluating and improving self-efficacy. In other words, helping patients become active participants and not passive recipients. And I think the patient needs to be the key player on the team. They need to be the captain of the team. I see my job, and our job here at A Healing Place, is to be guides and coaches. I also want to encourage that we are using collaborative, strength-based, non-confrontational approaches to help these people. We need to have a collaborative treatment plan with the patient input, and if the patients aren't a part of of developing their own treatment plan. They're much less likely to be able to follow it or want to follow it. I want to make sure that we include a strategic recovery and relapse prevention plan to improve people's levels of functioning biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. I want to continue with Jason and Maria's stories from the previous chapter. For those of you that haven't heard it yet, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to chapter two. In this presentation, I want to show how they went from serious life damaging consequences to moving into hope and healing. But for those of you that weren't with me for the last presentation, let me introduce you to these two people. Of course, you know I, the names and some of the demographics have been modified for confidentiality purposes. So with Jason, he was a 46-year-old married man with two teenage girls, one who became addicted to methamphetamine. He experienced an on-the-job injury, had lower back pain, was placed on disability, and started receiving opioids for treatment. His injury was extremely traumatic for him, he almost died. Unfortunately he was never authorized or offered psychotherapy for over three years. Jason was able to see how his pain meds helped him with his uncomfortable memories and emotions from the trauma. When he started experiencing nightmares, which is really common for a lot of people with PTSD, he was prescribed Ambien. He started out on the lowest possible dose, but within several months he was triple that dose, and it was starting to cause problems also. We ran into him here after he was in the system for five years before he came to Healing Place and was assessed by the integrated team. And in the last presentation, I discussed how one of the major obstacles to successful outcomes was either not recognizing a diagnosis or treating a diagnosis. So in our multidisciplinary integrated assessment process, we came up with Six different diagnoses that we needed to make sure we focused on with him. He had a medication use disorder, opioids. Sedative hypnotic use disorder with the Ambien. He, he met criteria for moderate to severe post-traumatic stress disorder. He had a moderate to severe generalized anxiety disorder. He had his psychological do- disorder, which was impacting his medical condition or his chronic pain and also a major depressive disorder. So Maria was a 56-year-old married woman with one adult son and three grandchildren. She had an auto accident where her husband died, and she was placed on disability to a neck injury, and prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines for her anxiety, grief, and loss from her husband's death. This injury was extremely traumatic for her, and she had moderate to severe PTSD and survivor's guilt. She was driving the car. She was never offered or provided psychotherapy. She didn't get to us for 15 years after the accident. And when we did the integrated assessment with her, she had an opioid use disorder and it turned out she had a hidden, a well-hidden alcohol use disorder that none of her family, her son or her grandkids didn't know about. She had a sedative hypnotic use disorder from the benzodiazepines She had a bipolar 2 disorder that didn't get diagnosed earlier, a generalized anxiety disorder, and she had a somatic symptom disorder also. So all these had been plaguing her for 15 years. So people like these two need a synergistic treatment solution. That's the main reason why I developed the Addiction-Free Pain Management System which is at the core of a Healing Place clinical program. We believe that current and collaborative treatment is a must and the patient is at the center of the bullseye. The bullseye is treatment outcomes, so we need to put the patient in the center and do wraparound. We need to have a whole team. It takes a team to heal a pain patient. When we talk about effective concurrent treatment I'll I'll talk about stages and phases. There's three stages of pain management, stage one, stage two, and stage three, and three phases of coexisting disorder treatment, phase one, two, and three. Many people that get to us, they have been getting pain management, but usually only the biomedical model. Many of them have never been identified or treated for any of the coexisting disorders, and some, a lot of the people we get we're starting at ground zero with. One of the big things in our program is knowledge, increasing patients' knowledge. Understanding pain is crucial for positive treatment outcomes. There's a saying that goes back a long time ago, knowledge is power. Sir Francis Bacon. Now I'd like to add that with another famous American, John Quincy Adams, who said a little knowledge that acts is worth infinitely more than much knowledge that's idle. So. Another time we've heard that uh, there's knowledge and then there's wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge that got into action. We want our patients to get into action. Unfortunately, many of the patients we see are very educated about what's going on. A couple of them we have uh, nicknamed Dr. Google. They learn as much as they can and some of it though they learn from not very reputable sources. And it reminded me of a story that in the 1800s, there was this American college professor who wanted to learn about Zen. So he went all over the world to all the different Zen masters, wanting to learn as much as he can. And they all kept referring him to the the head dude, Nanin. And Nanin was in Tibet. And so the professor decided, well, I got to go to this person. So he went up, he found him, he knocked on his door, and he says, I want to learn all about Zen, and I want to share with you everything I've learned so far. And he started babbling on, and uh, Nanin says, Oh, let's, let's stop and have tea. He invited him in to have tea. And as he handed the professor a saucer with a teacup, he started pouring the tea, and he kept pouring the tea. Pretty soon, the tea went over the top of the cup, and the professor's looking, what's going on? And then it went over the saucer, and it burned his hand. He says, what's going on? Why did you do that? And uh Nanin simply said, like this cup, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? So we're always asking our patients to go back to what is also known as beginner's mind. For the beginner there are many options, for the experts there are few. So like many of our patients, Maria and Jason both needed a lot of information and also they needed to let go of many of their systems and ways of knowing that were keeping them stuck in the problem. And of course for both of them it was the opioids and the benzos and the Ambien were the lifesavers and they needed some real help in that area but also they were really, really tired of suffering with their pain. So one of the early things we like to do with people is helping them understand the different types of pain. So we have six categories that we really cover with people. One is acute pain, and then how to differentiate acute and chronic pain. Then we move into the third, which is pain flare-ups or recurrent acute pain. And one of the biggest problems is anticipatory pain. And I'm I'm going to go through all of these more in-depth in a minute. And then we have neuropathic pain, and the final category is we need to teach our patients about is how to make peace with their pain. This is really crucial, probably the most important piece. So you know, one of the things we talk about with acute pain is we need to have a pain system. Human beings are built with receptors throughout our body for when something happens, when there's damage, those receptors signal to the brain that hey something's going on something needs attention you cut yourself you burned yourself you smashed yourself and the healing process is usually time limited and a lot of times analgesics or opioids may be used but if somebody's in recovery or it has genetic risk factors or actual history of a substance use disorder got to be really extremely cautious with that But this is what a lot of the opioids were made for, was acute pain, uh, surgery pain, major dental pain, end-of-life pain. Chronic pain is, most people say, it has to be ongoing for three to six months. For many people, the source, the original generator, is ambiguous now. I mean, any healing that can happen is usually healed by the first six to nine months. And the pain often stays long after the initial injury it's like uh, put it simply the pain system gets turned on and it just doesn't get turned off and it no longer serves that useful survival purpose that acute pain does what is really challenging here is treatment is very confusing and frustrating not only for the patients but their healthcare providers and when they're only depending upon the biomedical model and the person has coexisting disorders that's a one-way trip to treatment failure. We want to help our patients understand that pain flare-ups are a major relapse trigger for most of our population. So, you know, with people, they usually, uh, they're going along, they've identified, hey, a good goal for me is to keep my pain down to level 2, 3, or 4, let's say. When they have a flare-up, though, it goes up to 6, 7, or 8. The episodes are usually brief, sometimes minutes, hours, or a day or so, and in between they're at that goal, that let's say level three goal of pain, and that's very doable. A lot of times we teach our patients by the pain journaling work that we do with them on a daily basis, they can learn to identify precursors for pain flare-ups. We also let them know it needs a separate treatment plan where many of our patients have gotten trouble before they get to us is when they had a pain flare-up or where they thought they were at risk for a pain flare-up, they took extra medication, and many of them, it led to them running out early and having to go through withdrawal. What we want to teach our patients is most of the time, the intervention for a pain flare-up can be non-medication-based. There are things that act much quicker than medication in most cases. And that's what we want to teach them. We spend a lot of time with pain flare-up planning. It's part of their relapse prevention planning process. Then we have that anticipatory reaction. A lot of people get so fearful about conducting daily tasks of living that they can become stressed out or even immobilized. So we want to help them move beyond anticipatory pain. A lot of times their reactions are triggered either by emotional, internal, psychological, emotional stress triggers or environmental triggers. So, for example, if they know they're going to be going to a stressful meeting with somebody or they're going to the doctor and they're going to be quizzed about their level of medication use, Uh, if they're going to take a driving test, whatever it is, they have this anticipatory reaction, and it puts them at higher risk for using medication. A lot of times, these anticipatory reactions are cued to previous pain flare-up episodes. The premise here is what we want to teach our patients is you get what you expect. That can be a bad thing, but that can be a good thing. So we want to help people to move beyond the anticipatory reaction and to take appropriate care when they move into situations that might be stressful either psychologically emotionally or physically neuropathic pain basically a general definition is nerve dysfunction that persists beyond the normal time period of tissue healing so the nerves are keep signaling pain 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 after the uh, normal Tissue healing is done. It's no longer no susceptive pain. So, we want to help people understand neuropathic pain. And that's part of our initial pain assessment with people is, you know, we ask them things like uh, Do you have sensations that might be tingling, itching, or numbing? Uh, do you have shooting, burning, stabbing, aching, or electrical sensations? Uh, do you have a condition where You're hypersensitive to temperature or touch. Does your pain radiate or spread beyond the uh, injury area? And then we have the phantom limb pain. And phantom limb pain is very real. It's not there imagining the pain, it's very real. Those signals are being conducted up to the thalamus because there's been a dysfunction in the central nervous pain system and it keeps signaling. Like we had a patient here who had lost both legs, but yet his right foot was constantly burning and cramping. And he knew that was impossible, but that's what he felt. And he thought he was going crazy. So that takes a special intervention. And unfortunately, a lot of people use a straight agonist opioid for that, and that's not a very good idea. So how do you treat it? Well, we have different modalities for that. You know, we do non-pharmacological and appropriate recovery-friendly medication management for that. You know, duloxetine is something that's FDA-approved for not just depression, but for chronic pain and neuropathic pain. We have the uh, different medications like uh, gabapentin and pregabalin that is good and FDA-approved for neuropathic pain. So once we educate all about pain, then we need to help people learn about the importance of making peace with their pain. In other words, let's call a ceasefire. Let's stop suffering. This is really a tough sell for people because when living with chronic pain, though, it's crucial to stop seeing pain as the adversary. You're just fighting yourself. We need to make pain our best friend when we live with chronic pain and I can say that I live with chronic pain it has to be my best friend it's my barometer it's telling me something's going on I need to pay attention to it's not the enemy but that is a hard sell a lot of my patients when I tell them you need to make friends with your pain they says are you out of your freaking mind says no it's true and then we tell them you know It's not always possible to eliminate your pain, but I can guarantee if you're willing to do the footwork, you don't have to suffer with it anymore. And making peace with your pain is a crucial step to obtain freedom from suffering. And I believe, and this is my wife's tagline for my book, Freedom From Suffering, A Journey of Hope, is freedom from suffering is your right, but it's also your responsibility. And we want to teach people about this important piece. When you look at traditional pain management, most of it's focused on the biomedical area, the biology. Well, that's an important piece because that's what we call the ascending pain signal. It comes from the receptors, whether it's in your feet, your hands, your legs, your neck, your back, internal, external. It's a signal that, hey, something's wrong. When that signal gets up to the thalamus, there gets meaning assigned to the pain signal this is the descending the psychological emotional part and then there's also the social cultural the decent it's part of the descending regulation too. this often becomes the role that gets assigned to the person in pain or the role people in pain take on like usually loser flawed defective broken disabled and then There's another piece here, the family and cultural beliefs about pain. And one of the pieces that often gets missed is people who live with long-term chronic pain are impacted spiritually, too. It cuts people off from their spiritual values, practices, and principles. We believe that all these four areas need to be addressed, and the spiritual is the glue that ties it all together. So, again it's really important to understand that because pain has four components we need to have interventions for each of the four components bio, psycho, social, spiritual. That's the whole foundation of healing the whole person. A lot of times when people live with chronic pain they have a chronic pain cycle that's going on. What tends to happen is the more they experience the pain, they sh- they're physiologically stressed, they have muscle tension, they tense up, they tighten up. That's on the biological, physiological side. But then there's the psychological, emotional reactions. Some of the most common would be anger, fear, anxiety, depression. These all lead to an intensified perception of pain. This is like the pain amplifier. So we need to teach people how to break the cycle and that it needs to be broken both physiologically and psychologically emotionally. So we teach people relaxation response, teach them about acceptance and stress management, and then for the emotional components, cognitive behavioral restructuring, dialectical behavioral therapy, mindfulness, all of those are really important to turn down the amplifier to lead to a decreased perception of people's pain. That's how we help them break their cycle. And we need to help them build a toolbox to do that. One of the biggest things though is helping people understand the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is that ascending signal, that physical sensation that tells us something's wrong. Suffering is the interpretation of that sensation. So instead of, ouch, this hurts, it becomes horrible, awful, terrible, unbearable. Or the famous, my pain is killing me. Now words have power, so when people are having thoughts and words like that, it's actually amplifying their perception of pain. And one of the old sayings goes back a long ways. Pain's inevitable, suffering's optional. Well, that's true in chronic pain also and again freedom from suffering we believe is every patient's right and it's also their responsibility and we want to help them do that we help them differentiate between the two so basically let me share with you some of the things we do so I'm going to go through a list of different physiological pain symptoms that are on our pre-assessments aching, throbbing, splitting, piercing irritated, sore, burning, stinging, which is neuropathic, inflamed, sharp, hot, radiating, more neuropathic, tender, painful, numbing, tingling, again, which is more neuropathic. Those are all the physiological components of pain. Psychological, or the suffering, are symptoms like it's dreadful, it's severe, it's irritating, nagging, it's saddening, it's depressing, It's distressing and excruciating. It's grueling and punishing. It's upsetting and aggravating, terrifying, dreadful, fatiguing, and debilitating. Those are two way different symptom sets. So what what I have is there's 27 physiological symptoms and 27 psychological emotional symptoms. Each are scored on a one to ten scale. So there's a total severity rating for the physiological at 90. Total severity rating for the psychological is also 90. A lot of our patients have sometimes as many as 25, 26, and sometimes even 27 psychological emotional symptoms, and let's say they have 10 or 15 physiological symptoms. Their score can be all 10s, and they can have 90 out of 90 psychological emotional symptoms and maybe 80 out of 90 or 70 out of 90 physiological, or sometimes 90 out of 90. Some patients score 10s all the way. That's all they they want to do is talk about 10. And there's many reasons why people overrate or underrate pain symptoms. It's because they've never been taught how to use a pain scale. So both Jason and Maria had significantly higher levels of psychological emotional symptoms, and they were quite surprised. And at first, they had shame reactions about this, like many of my patients do. But with a reframe, we say, hey, no, that's a good thing, because that is the amplifier circuit, and if we can help you learn how to turn down the volume by using these psychosocial spiritual interventions, it'll bring your physiological symptoms down or at least your perception of those physiological symptoms way down so we frame it as it's a good thing and the psychological emotional symptoms let's use the metaphor it's like having an infected cut and the only thing you do is cover it up with a color coordinated band-aid the infection doesn't go away, in fact it festers and gets worse. So we need to help people look at these two different components. And the medication is meant only for the physiological or neuropathic symptoms, and it's never a good idea to depend on <clears throat> that alone for the psychological emotional symptoms. The next big piece of the puzzle with our patients is teaching them to understand the stress pain connection. This is a big piece. Because they're very reciprocal. As people's stress goes up, their pain goes up. As their pain goes up, their stress goes up. So we need to teach them how to use a stress scale and how to use a pain scale. So we use what we call a stress thermometer. Our stress thermometer has four zones. A blue zone, green zone, yellow zone, red zone. Blue zone we call the relaxation zone. This is where, you know, level 1 might be when you first wake up. You're totally relaxed, nearly asleep. You move to level 2, now you might be up on autopilot and you're not really focused. Level 3 I call vacation mode. I'm focused, my focus is on relax. To get anything done, we've got to be in the green or the functional zone. At level 4, we start getting focused and active. We come online. Level 5 is the ultimate. This is where we're free-flowing. We're on cruise control. We're functioning with no effort. Level six becomes the danger zone for pain patients. This is where we're having to push a lot harder to get things done. And if we don't catch it here, when it moves into the next zone, the yellow zone, this is the stress reaction, the fight-flight-freeze kicks in. We start losing frontal lobe capacity and going into the amygdala limbic or survival brain. At level seven, we start having an inability to stay totally focused, we go in and out of focus, we get spacey. If I move up to level 8, I get irritated and agitated, driven and defensive. Level 9 is the overreaction stage. I call that foot and mouth. That's where I'm going to say or do things I know I'm going to regret. And then level 10 is the loss of control stage. This is where people with substance use disorders are at highest risk for using medication, alcohol or other drugs to cope. Now, for people with an unresolved trauma history, they can go all the way up to 20. At 15, they go into dissociation, lose touch with reality. At level 20, they can go into psychosis or total collapse or meltdown. So we want to teach them how to use a thermometer. And then what we do with each group of patients is we have them do a group thermometer as an art assignment coming up with their own colors, their own words, and have them have a go at it. And that's posted in the group room, and that's what we keep going back to. So it becomes their stress thermometer. So a big part of stress management is relaxation and skill building. We've got to build people's skills. So the first step is to teach them about the stress thermometer, match that thermometer to what's going on in their life. I'm at a level five because everything's cool and I'm nothing's bothering me. I'm at level 10 because the world's falling apart and I'm collapsing. I'm at level two because I'm almost asleep. I'm so relaxed. So to connect that. We want to keep it below seven. And matter of fact, six is when we start to initiate action before we move into the fight flight freeze or the stress reaction. We want to make sure that we always have The patients understand that if they notice they're getting stressed, they can call for a timeout. And we tell them, if we notice things are getting stressed, we're going to call a timeout. We want to help them and teach them immediately some really simple to learn relaxation response tools that they can use right away. This will help them make better decisions and less likely to have poor impulse control or give in to urges or cravings. And personalizing, personalizing the stress thermometer is really important. We want them to own it. Even when I'm doing one-on-one work with patients, I have them do this for themselves and come back and share it with me. So the next step is to teach them some really easy-to-learn relaxation response tools. The most simple one is using progressive muscle relaxation with deep breathing. Sometimes just teaching people how to breathe deep, different can make a big difference. Taking in slow, deep breaths, holding it for just a little bit, and then fully exhaling. Breathing in through your nose and hold. Breathing out through your mouth fully so the next breath is totally fresh and pure. I like to use a lot of guided imagery, but we've got to be really careful, especially for people with unresolved trauma histories, because sometimes we can hit uh, a PTSD landmine. We can hit a PTSD trigger. And uh, I'll never forget the first time it happened to me when I was learning guided imagery. It was with a Vietnam vet, and the words out of my mouth, and as soon as they left my mouth, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, you're heading towards this peaceful jungle. And all of a sudden, (laughs) no, 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 the guy really got upset. Um, Giving people tools like hypnosis, self-hypnosis, and one of the biggest tools I've found is having people stop and write down 10 things they're grateful for. We also for people that are inclined help them tap into their spiritual energy, prayer, reflection, meditation, and we use a lot of self-hypnotic MP3s. And we usually we have six main titles we use <coughs> that are preloaded into MP3 players that we issue each patient when they come in and teach them how to use them, and which one would be the most effective for them. So some of the titles we use might be up from depression, relieve stress and anxiety, relaxation, uh, pain management, stop smoking. There's a number of different ones we use. And by the way, uh, reducing or eliminating nicotine, caffeine, and sugar is another good way to evoke a relaxation response. Sometimes we want to teach people how to get into nature, go for a nature walk, how to do some movement, aerobic exercise or dance. Uh, For some of our patients, they have to do some of that in the water. Uh, We use um, some yoga, you know, uh, functional restoration type yoga, sometimes Tai Chi. We want to use soothing music, but realizing that what's soothing for one person might be irritating for another, so each person has to choose what's soothing for them. And then we go in and ask them, and I want you to think about it for a minute, what are some ways you lower your stress? What are some of your favorite tools that you can teach other people? Once We move into the pain-stress connection, pain, and the psychological versus physiological pain. Then we want to really delve in again and reinforce the importance of healing the whole person. So with this, we need to make sure we're focused on their chronic pain, any substance use, any other coexisting psychological problems. And many of these people have a unsuccessful medical treatments for many different things we need to take a look at their psychosocial assets and liabilities and how are they being impacted spiritually and we want to rate their levels of functioning and quality of life in the four quadrants biological psychological social and spiritual this is part of our outcome measures data gathering that we do at intake and then we do it three weeks and six weeks. I'm gonna show you at the end here some of the outcome measures that we use. So when we talk about healing, it's working with the whole person. So in the biological realm, we need to be helping build people. I'm gonna go over some specific things that might be possible in that area. We also then have the psychological, social, and then the spiritual, which is again the glue that holds it all together. So, and the biological interventions, it's things like diet, nutrition, and exercise. The holy triad. It's easy, does it, but do it, though. We need to teach people good activity pacing with that. Sleep hygiene. Uh, Not depending upon medications, or if we're using medications, to use recovery-friendly medications that... We can utilize while also using some of the non-pharmacological sleep aids. We want to teach people how to use appropriate activity pacing. Some people are excitement-seeking personalities. They want to do too much. That's me. And then we have other people that are the more sedentary type that might need a kick in the butt to get them moving at all. So appropriate activity pacing is crucial. Good hygiene physical and dental hygiene Uh, we need to make sure that they're on an appropriate recovery friendly medication management plan and again stop being so dependent upon these biomedical fixes want to try things like massage yoga acupuncture chiropractic hydrotherapy I mentioned earlier the importance of stress management so all those relaxation response we also use biofeedback and neurofeedback which fit in this area and I mentioned also that it's really important to eliminate or reduce nicotine caffeine and sugar those all trigger or exacerbate post-acute withdrawal for people with a substance use disorder then we move into the psychological intervention educate 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 knowledge is power education about pain recovery mental health and addiction we need to really educate people about identifying and treating and healing a lot of these symptoms we want to teach them how to manage their emotions in a healthy way the first step is teaching them an emotional vocabulary and we have several different ways we do this and we actually have a a chart in the group room that lists some of the more common feeling states and then on the ends on the bell curve ends of those we have the distorted ends of the emotion these are things like uh, grandiose and helpless resentful and obligated manic and depressed complacent and panic, gluttonous and hopeless isolated and meshed arrogance and shame so those are at the distorted end things in the middle are things like anger caring, happy, sad, safe, threatened, fulfilled, frustrated, lonely, connected, proud, and guilty. So we want to teach them an emotional vocabulary and then how to rate the intensity of the emotions and then how to express their emotions in appropriate ways. We want to use a lot of music, art, journaling, right brain work, collage work to engage the right and left hemispheres. Sometimes we want to teach them, one of the denial patterns is called avoidance by distraction. But sometimes that can be very positive to focus on something besides your obsession or suffering with your pain. I always give patients an assignment to find something that takes your attention off your pain. And some of them really struggle with it. Maria was one of the people that really struggled with it until... After family workshop, she came up to me totally amazed. She says when she was playing with her grandchildren, she wasn't even in touch that she had pain. And that was a aha moment for her, a breakthrough. We want to, again, I mentioned denial, we want to look at all those defense mechanisms or that armor that keeps people stuck. I know for me, learning to let go of that rigid suits of armor I developed throughout my life was a really important part of becoming authentic and being a empathetic and compassionate human being that was able to connect with other people in a healthy way. Letting go of my defenses that tell me I don't have a problem when I really do. We want to teach people how to have better thinking management and that starts with looking at the beliefs and perceptions that lead to that thinking and then how to Challenge negative self-defeating thinking with positive, strength-based affirmation statements. We want to teach people meditation, expose them to hypnosis and self-hypnosis. A lot of therapy or counseling is really crucial, both individual and group. And teaching people, most importantly, how to find daily balance. Many of our patients are in the all-or-nothing syndrome. When we move into social, some of the areas that we need to help them step away from some of their enabling or codependent friends and family members and setting assertive limits and boundaries with them. We want to hook them up with healthy and appropriate self-help support. Uh, A lot of the substance use population that we have may not do real well in the typical Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous groups. Uh, I always encourage people to start with things like Chronic Pain Anonymous or Pills Anonymous, and maybe even Al-Anon if they have a family history, and then to ease into the other self-help meetings. Also, there's rational recovery, smart recovery, rational recovery. The importance is there needs to be some type of healthy social support that you don't have to pay for. And find appropriate people, healthy, safe people, that support you with your goals for healing biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. People that will help you avoid going back to the old ways. Learning where there's places to go where you feel safe and don't trigger grief, loss, or depression, for example. Or places where you won't be tempted to use medication, alcohol, or other drugs if you're recovering from a substance use disorder. And most importantly, learning to have fun and especially having fun with others. Many of the patients that have been in that chronic pain trance and totally isolated need to learn how to lighten up and have some fun and learn how to interact with other people. So one of the steps in the 12-step program is making amends. So sometimes going back and cleaning up the wreckage of the past is a really important thing with some of these people that have this grief and shame and uh guilt about what they've done to their family members. We want to teach them to connect with family in a healthy way. That's why our family component of our program is so crucial. So we have a three-day family integrated workshop that ends with equine therapy. But family members are given an online course that gives them parallel information that their loved ones are getting in treatment so that when they come to the face-to-face family workshop, they already have some tools. They already have some knowledge and education. We want to teach patients and their family members the importance of setting assertive limits and boundaries and about being very proactive. And, you know, communication, communication, communication. A lot of times communication is crossed or dysfunctional. We need to teach people how to use I messages talking about me rather than you messages is blaming you. So communication is a really important tool that we want to teach people. When it comes to the spiritual, we need to, first of all, one of the assignments we give people is to have them answer a questionnaire about what they see as the difference between religion and spirituality. And to uh, frame that down, I usually ask people to come back with a very short sentence or two uh, summary or definition of what they see as the difference. I'll never forget one patient. She came back and she says, I got it. For me, religion is a group of people getting together to plan for the next life, and it has a lot of dogma. And spirituality is a group of people getting together to get the most out of this life, and there's no dogma. So that was this person's definition, but every person's difference. We want to teach people how to find balance, and many people also find their spiritual connection in nature. The importance of prayer, either on your own or with other people for some people. Individual or group meditation. I know my wife and I, 30 years ago, when we first got together, loved to go to one of the centers that did prayer groups, chanting, and meditation. So we combine music, and that was very healing for us. If people are in a 12-step program, it's actually working the steps, not just going to meetings. I keep telling people going to meetings will not keep you stable. It's working the steps and what you do between meetings, which will improve your quality of life. We want to teach people about the importance of self-love and self-forgiveness. A lot of our patients have such a hard time with this. Many of them hate themselves. They feel they can never forgive themselves. And for other people, it's learning how to forgive others. Developing some type of faith in a power greater than self can be very healing for some people. Engaging in a spiritual practice, developing spiritual principles, values, and practices is really crucial and some of these are on your own and some of these can be with other people and it's the same some of our patients are religious and that is way cool so teach a lot of these people by the way really get back into their religion and thrive with it but we want them to engage in religious or spiritual activities on their own and with other people so biopsychosocial spiritual pulling it all together And then once we get people in a healing place, we need to give them some tools to stay that way. We start continuing care planning and relapse prevention planning in the first week of our program. And relapse prevention is crucial for all three components, addiction, mental health, and chronic pain. And so helping them develop a relapse intervention plan that incorporates using appropriate significant others as part of their relapse network is Crucial. We want to start with at least three appropriate significant others, people they don't have to pay, people who are really engaged and want to see them be successful. And we start that like right at intake, basically. We start looking at who is the people we can pull on and who are the people you should avoid. And the most important thing is we teach our patients that relapse is a process, not an event. And there's A question we ask, what has to happen before somebody can relapse? And even in groups, when I present that question to a group of treatment professionals, many of them don't get what I'm looking for. The answer I'm looking for is you've got to be in recovery before you can relapse. So what does it mean being in recovery? Well, I think there's certain criteria people need to meet. This is what I'm looking for. Do they have an accurate understanding of the target problem? the addictive disorder, the mental health disorder, do they really understand it? Can they apply that understanding to themselves? In other words, are they out of denial? Then, the next important piece is, do they have belief and hope that not only is recovery possible, it's preferable? And then, are they willing to get into action? Are they willing to do the bio, psycho, social, spiritual footwork? And, the last component which is important, but it's not the only thing, is following an appropriate recovery-friendly medication management plan. So that's what I consider being in a recovery process. So once people make that commitment to stabilize, people in recovery go in and out of the relapse cycle all of the time. And the relapse cycle always, always, always starts with some type of return to denial. And it has nothing to do with the chemicals at first. If you look at a clock, with 1 o'clock through 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock's the the healthy place, I'm healthy, I'm in a committed, stable recovery, to 1 o'clock, meaning I return to denial, it's not until 9 o'clock that people start thinking about medication, alcohol, or other drugs as a solution. What usually happens at 2 o'clock is people stop doing what got them better. I use the metaphor, the recovery process is like walking up a down escalator and having a mistaken belief that if I stop, I'll stay in place. So when the person stops growing, that opens up the inner saboteur. Old thinking patterns start kicking in, and when people's thinking starts getting wonky, the next thing that happens is their decision-making gets bad, and they make bad decisions which leads to negative consequences which leads to increased stress and problems and to deal with that if they're in a relapse cycle they don't use their new healthy recovery tools they go back and return to old behaviors and I'm not talking about chemical behaviors at this point some people procrastinate some people go internet cruising some people go channel surfing some people isolate which when they get down to 6 o'clock, this is where people start pulling away from people who are in the solution, and that leaves them open to gravitating towards people that are going to enable or reinforce where they're at, Oh, re- reinforcing that's horrible, awful, terrible. Then for this population, one of the biggest triggers that leads to the chemical thinking, the addictive thinking, is when they have a pain flare-up. And sometimes they put themselves in harm's way for those flare-ups. And usually, when this thinking occurs, a lot of people say, Oh my God, yeah, I would love to do that, but I can't because I might be drug tested. My doctor says they're randomly testing me now. So I push it down. And unfortunately, when they don't talk about it, it festers. Then at some point... They set themselves up for a relapse justification. They hit a high-risk situation, something that raises their stress levels. They go in the high levels of stress into survival brain, and they get to the point where they believe there's no way out except to collapse, to use something, or to commit suicide. And so the 11 o'clock position is the chemical or self-defeating relapse part. So relapse is a process, not an event. It takes time. So when we're developing relapse prevention, we believe that people that are in our residential program may need a step-down treatment option for sustained outcomes. We help them develop a continuing care plan, and we continuously revise it throughout the treatment process. And when we get to their discharge date, they receive a written continuing care plan as part of their discharge summary. The discharge summary also has a list of their outcome measures pre and post which i'm going to mention outcome measures in a minute so if you want to know what makes poor treatment outcomes it's the people that are maliciously compliant and half-heartedly following recommendations of their healthcare provider they have magical expectations to be pain-free with minimal personal effort And they're not motivated to experiment with traditional and non-traditional pain management methods. And most importantly, one of the indicators of bad outcomes is lack of positive family and or social support. So what we want to do is create high outcome patients who become actively involved. They become active participants in understanding their pain disorder and the available treatment interventions that are out there for them. They're willing to let go of the magical thinking and are actually willing to do the footwork. They're self-motivated to actively and systematically experiment with all kinds of different things they may have never done before. And to heal family wounds and develop some positive family and social support. That leads to healthy outcomes for people. And again, to sum up where I started... Patients need to become knowledgeable active participants, not passive recipients. They always need to be the captain of their own team. And I see my job and our job here at a healing place is to be guides and coaches for these people. And we want to use collaborative, strength-based approach, avoiding confrontation, to create concurrent and collaborative treatment plans that address the whole person, bio,psychosocial, spiritually and to develop a recovery and relapse prevention plan for pain, for coexisting disorders, and substance use disorders. That is the solution. So some of the things we want to look at is by going through treatment, many of these people stop being such high health care utilization people. So when we have our outcome measures that are part of our electronic measures, what we do is we measure post-acute withdrawal. And we have a top score, say, of 230. A lot of people coming in are in the hundreds. We want to get them down below 50. We have an assessment for biofeedback that measures both physiological and psychological stress and anxiety. We measure the ascending versus descending pain signals, the psychological versus the physiological. We use a PTSD checklist. We have a depression, anxiety, and stress scale. For family, we have a family assessment device for general family functioning. We measure, like I mentioned earlier, people's levels of functioning biologically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. We have another instrument that measures spiritual index of well-being. We have one that measures the dysfunction in people's quality of life. 100 is horrible quality of life, zeros, no problems. So a lot of people come in the 70s and 80s and they can go out in the 20s and 30s out of 100. We want to use the pain outcome profile, which has seven scales. Mobility, activities of daily living, vitality, negative affect, fear, the physical index, and the affective index. And so we use all these instruments to help us determine pre and post outcome measures for people. So it's really crucial when we talk about managing pain and coexisting disorders. So when we talk about, you know, our people that we've been working with, Maria and, (coughs) I'm sorry, excuse me, Jason, they had some significant shifts with their outcome measures. And, you know, they had... Over 50% improvement across the board when you count all 13 of the outcome measures. Some were higher and some were lower, but the aggregate or the average of all of them was over 50%, which we think is really good. Anything over 30%, I believe, is good. I was shooting for 40% and I was very excited when, for our program, when we did measures on a number of residential and uh, full day treatment patients the aggregate for everybody was almost 54 percent improvement of all the people that we've had go through our program so i'm really ecstatic about that so we do make a difference and again some of the big things that we need to understand is to teach people about the different types of pain acute chronic recurrent acute anticipatory neuropathic and one of the most important parts is making peace with pain. We need to teach people that they need to get into action. And a little knowledge that acts is worth infinitely more than much knowledge that is idle. We need to use concurrent and collaborative treatment in keeping the patient as the center of the bullseye. Using a synergistic approach for a synergistic problem. And when we do that, we can have people have these good outcomes. And again, I want to end with the uh, quote I started with by David Joseph Swartz. Believe it can be done. When you believe something can be done, really believe. Then your mind will find ways to do it. Believing a solution paves the way to the solution. Words have power. I'll see it when I believe it. Not, I'll believe it when I see it. And the premise here, again, as always, is helping our patients get out of their own way, getting out of their problem and into their solution. And to do that, they need to really work hard. And fortunately, both Jason and Maria did a really good job with this. And they came a long ways, a lot of healing. Um, Maria had some major breakthroughs with her survivor's guilt. She had some amazing breakthrough with her son and her grandchildren. She got reunited. She had been getting more and more estranged. Her son uh, didn't want uh, his mother to be near the kids because she was so dysfunctional. And it was such an awesome reunion. She was able to find peace and forgive herself for the auto accident. And, you know... It's just amazing. The, she had over 60% improvement in her PTSD symptoms. It was, just, it was great. And, you know, Jason, he had some great breakthroughs also. As a result of Jason getting into recovery and getting help, his methamphetamine-addicted daughter agreed to go into treatment and get help. When they came to the family component of the program, it was amazing to watch the healing that happened. And, you know, he really had a lot of healing, too. He had about a 45% improvement with his PTSD symptoms, and he knew he needed to do some ongoing work in that area. So, you know, again... As I started my first presentation, I told everybody we're at a really crucial intersection right now of chronic pain and opioids, and that we need an integrated, collaborative approach because it's costing way too much time, money, energy, families. There's too much pain and suffering happened, and we need to help people really get out of the problem, into the solution, And we need to include their family members wherever possible. And we need to really empower our patients to be the active participants in their own life. So I really want to thank you all for participating. Make sure that you do the evaluations and the post-tests so you get credit. And if you come to a question you don't understand, I guarantee it's in this presentation. You can go back and uh, check it out. And as always, onward and upward, and thank you for this opportunity to be of service. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.